This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And our prime directive here is to share stories of successful conflict resolution, to offer us all models for how to maybe do better with the many conflicts we personally or our society in general run up against. Today, a story of restorative justice and reconciliation between a woman who was a victim of a non-consensual sexual assault during a casual date in college and the man who assaulted her. We'll hear about an all-too-rare resolution where the perpetrator becomes inspired to make things more right by admitting his guilt first to his victim, then publicly, and then teaming up with the victim to share their story together to promote consent and help reduce sexual abuse in dating. This full story can be heard on the podcast Reckonings, and you can find it online at reckonings.show. But we're going to present a bit of a shortcut version of it today on our program by interviewing the Reckonings producer and host, Stephanie Lepp, who starts by telling us what the mission of her podcast is. Reckonings comes from the idea that big change out there in the world, you know, begins in here, you know, inside of people. Uh, which which then begs the question, you know, h- how do people change? You know, how what 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 moves people to shift their political worldviews and transcend extremism and and you know and and bring their ethics into the workplace? And so, that's really what reckonings is. It's an exploration of how we change our hearts and minds. And each episode features someone who has made some kind of transformative change, you know, from a, a deeply conservative congressman who made a, a, a dramatic shift on climate change all the way to, you know, a, a white supremacist, a former white supremacist who managed to transcend a life of hate, all the way to the, the people we're going to hear from today. Yeah, and what about this particular episode that we're about to explore made it a perfect fit for the series? It's the story of a perpetrator and survivor of sexual assault who managed to work through it using restorative justice. The voice of a survivor who actually got her needs met, you know, knew what she needed and got her needs met. And the voice of a perpetrator who, you know, who, re- who really skillfully and, 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 and graciously, you know, t- takes responsibility for his sexual abuse of power. They, they represent one answer to the question, yeah, how, how do we change? How do we grow through? How do we heal through sexual abuse of power? Well, and I will say that I think the hearing from the survivor point of view has been covered pretty well in stories about uh, sexual abuse and uh, consent and such. But it's pretty rare to get a perpetrator who deeply dives into uh, a healing process to talk openly about their experience. And that's what makes this kind of extraordinary, I think. Yes, yes, especially on the perpetrator side of things. Yeah, we're not, we're not hearing that, you know, and, and partly because, you know, it's, I mean, we're not here, it's like, we, we don't hear our public figures kind of coming out and taking responsibility. And partly, because they don't, they, they don't know what it sounds like, they haven't had models. And so part of what I want to do here is, is model, you know, not, not, not just what it sounds like for a perpetrator to take responsibility, but, but also how beautiful and powerful, and I would even say manly, <laughs> it can sound, you know, to, 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 to really just, again, graciously take responsibility for, for one's impact on another person. 
So what we're going to do on today's show is kind of give you a streamlined version of the podcast. But again, I just want to recommend that you listen to the whole hour-long program online, again, at reckonings.show and on SoundCloud, because that's really the way to experience it. But for the purposes of time, Stephanie, why don't you give us a thumbnail of the two principal characters in the story? Yeah, so their names are Anwin and Samir, and these are actually pseudonyms, and they met freshman year. So in the story, Anwan and Samir wind up meeting at a fraternity party, and through kind of an unusual sequence of events, they wind up in Samir's room at the end of the night. Anwan's keys and phone get accidentally locked in someone else's room, and that's what necessitates Mm -hmm. the idea that Samir invites Anwan to spend the night in his room. And then we hear... In the podcast, a graphic description of a sexual encounter that Anwan says she made clear pretty early on that she did not want to participate in. Mm -hmm. And the sexual activity can be described rather explicitly on a podcast, but not over the airwaves. So, Stephanie, if you will, what's kind of a PG-13 version that uh, you can describe to us of what happened that evening? Yeah, so, right, she didn't have access to her keys, and she didn't know how she was going to get home or where she was going to sleep and Samir was kind of convincing her to come home with him and she told him she didn't want to but he ultimately convinced her to come home with him which is when you know let's say he kind of yeah he coerced her into sexual activities uh, you know taking off clothing engaging in specific sexual acts that she really did not want to do and was and was very kind of physically recoiling from and finally at one point she started crying and he finally kind of let up said he was hard to please and would go to the bathroom and finish up himself and then came back and uh, kind of got in bed with her and put his arm over her and that's how they went to bed that night Mm -hmm. yeah and you can even tell years later that for Anwan, this was an upsetting event. Yes. Just in the tone of her voice and in the way she's describing it. But Samir's characterization of the encounter is a little bit different. Could you sort of, in interviewing him, describe uh, how he seemed to feel about it or characterize it? Yeah, so he just thought it was an awkward hookup, which in and of itself seemed kind of normal to him at the time. You know, he's somewhat sexually inexperienced. Hookups can be awkward at that age, you know, and the way he says it is it doesn't always work out the way it does in the movies, you know. So he just just thought, thought of it as an awkward hookup, while she, yes, had a very, very, very different experience. Yeah. So sometime in the next year, Samir has a bit of an epiphany, I'd say. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Samir decided to become an orientation leader, which involved doing Green Dot training. And Green Dot Bystander Intervention is a, is a program on college campuses nationwide that, uh, that basically teaches students how to respond to sexual assault on campus including how to recognize sexual assault when it's happening. And he'd, he'd previously thought of sexual assault as something that only happened, you know, it was, uh, he calls it a, a shiftless stranger, you know, in a dark alley kind of attacking an unsuspecting young woman. Um, and the facilitator at this Green Dot training said, you know, it's not just about physical 
manipulation or physical violence. It can also be about emotional manipulation. Um, and, and that sexual assault can simply be putting someone in a situation where they feel like they can't say no. And when he heard that, he immediately thought of that night, freshman year, with Anwen. Yeah, let's hear a little bit from the podcast now from Samir after this moment of self-realization. I was terrified that I assaulted her. I was terrified that I had hurt her in this way. I was terrified of myself because if this was true and I, and I did assault her, then what did that make me? Um, I was terrified of being found out. I was terrified of being sent to jail. I was terrified of all the consequences that come with, uh, that, mm, uh, all the consequences that come with, um, sexual assault and rape. And I didn't have anybody that I was like, who I could tell because like, how, how do I say, hi, I think I, I think I assaulted and raped somebody, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, I did not tell anybody, um, about this incident. I kept it to myself. Um, I knew that I wanted to learn more because if this, if this like hour long training taught me all this, then maybe I need to educate myself more. Yeah. So while Samir was getting some enlightenment about sexual assault, what was going on for Anwan during this time? Yeah, so Anwen was really affected by it. She would she would kind of get stuck replaying that night over and over again in her head. She was struggling to focus in school. She was having difficulty with physical intimacy. But she also was not totally understanding why it was affecting her so much because she too, like Samir, had this kind of similarly narrow understanding of sexual assault. For her, sexual assault had to involve vaginal penetration by force. You know, that was her right. So so for her, it was like, if this wasn't that, then, you know, why am I so affected by it? So she was being affected while also not really understanding why. Both Samir and Anwan, they wind up connected to sexual assault awareness campaigns, and then they wind up being at the same event at the same time. And here's a clip I want to play of them telling about being at that same event and recognizing that they were there together. It was, I mean, unrehearsed. I walked up to the mic and started speaking pretty much. And I kind of went through the story a little bit and more just like the motions afterwards, but I didn't say his name. And he was sitting in the audience right in front of me. I was actually sitting about 10 feet away from her. I tried really hard to keep myself together. Um, I couldn't look her in the eye. But I felt like such a hypocrite. Uh, this is uh, supposed to be a space that's meant for survivors and allies. If you throw even a well-meaning perpetrator in there, does that negatively impact the movement itself. I wanted to call him out. I really wanted to call him out. But I wanted him to be able to come forward on his own 
I wanted him to be able to be standing up there with me and speaking the story with me and be able to have the story be exposed in a way that didn't just write us into the categories of like angelic, pure survivor, horrible, evil, assaulter. Those things that make somebody assault, those are things that we can overcome if we learn about them and people can acknowledge that they've done something wrong and grow from it and learn from it and be better people. And I think I actually said, like, if this person comes forward and tells his story, I hope that you'll listen to him. I wanted to tell my story more. I wanted to tell people. Like, I started feeling this this massive, like, need to have other people know and to have other people know that it was him that did it. And then I went to Frank. So Stephanie Lepp, who was Frank and what happened next? What was the next step for these two? Yeah, so Frank was the director of student conduct at their university. And so he's he's the guy you go to when you have some kind of a complaint, you know, that a student is cheating or giving alcohol to minors or, you know, if there's some kind of sexual misconduct. And she she knew she didn't want a, a verdict handed down from on high. She wanted Samir to to take responsibility and to and to and to and to and to do some kind of something together, something collaborative to make things better. She has this amazing line where she says, I didn't want to take away his agency because that would just be reversing the roles. Yeah. What was important to her was that both people have the opportunity to make things better. And in telling Frank what she was wanting, he just said to her, you know, it sounds like what you want is restorative justice. And restorative justice was something she had never heard of, (laughs) but it was just kind of, she kind of just intuited her way into what she felt like she needed. And so what happened next was that her and Frank, and then, you know, Frank invited Samir and Samir agreed, kind of choreographed this restorative justice process that they then went through. Right. And we've covered restorative justice on our program, but it's been some time. So maybe you could describe what the basics of restorative justice are, particularly as it relates to this case. Yeah. So the basics of restorative justice. So instead of focusing on punishment, you know, which which is kind of what we often focus on, you know, did the person break a law or violate a policy, you know, and what's the punishment for that crime? Restorative justice really focuses on the harm that was caused. You know, how was the victim impacted? What are their needs? You know, and what and what can be done? What can the offender do to, to help repair, to repair that harm? And so the goal really is to kind of find a, a resolution that achieves justice for everyone, you know, healing for victims and, and, and really allows offenders to kind of to take responsibility for their actions. And, and the, the kind of, I guess the basic idea is that because crime hurts, you know, justice should heal. And so the basic process um, that, uh, that they went through and that I think is pretty common to restorative justice is there are three phases. First, there's the pre-conference where the facilitator meets with both parties separately to kind of, 
you know, like find out what happened. What are their needs? How are people feeling? You know, so Frank met with Anwen and Samir separately for weeks. And then the second phase is the conference, which is where they actually all meet in person. And this is this is the chance for you know, on when to ask Samir questions, you know, like, couldn't you tell how, that I was recoiling, you know, and, and for Samir to, to answer them and also to share his repair plan, his, his, his plan for, for what, you know, for, for what he's going to do in order to, to help repair the harm that he caused. And then after the conference is the post-conference, which is, which is basically just, you know, Samir, you know, doing those things and, and Frank kind of continuing to liaise between Anwen and Samir as, as Samir carries out his repair plan. We're talking to Stephanie Lepp, who's the producer of the Reckonings podcast. And uh, this episode that we're spotlighting is called A Survivor and Her Perpetrator Find Justice. It's number 21 on their reckonings.show website. More with Stephanie Lepp, host of the Reckonings podcast, and more about her episode, Modeling Reconciliation Around Sexual Assault, when Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. You're tuned to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of our programs dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Peace Talks producer Paul Ingalls. In part one of our show today, we're talking with Stephanie Lepp, producer of a podcast called Reckonings. About her episode, she titled A Survivor and Her Perpetrator Find Justice. It's the story of a woman, Anwen, and a man, Samir, who met at a college fraternity party. Samir forced non-consensual sex on Anwan, but the two wound up teaming up through a restorative justice protocol at the school. And what I'd like to do now is hear a little bit from Anwan and Samir, not their real names, as Stephanie told us. And I'd like to invert the comments of the two uh, from how you, Stephanie, placed them in the podcast, if you don't mind. First, we'll hear Anwan and then Samir in this extended clip. It was scary um, to basically be putting all of this hurt out on the table. Um, it was really important for me to to have him know exactly what I felt um, and, and how big the impact was and how often the impact was. The the process gave me the chance to to really know that I was having an impact um, on him. That 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 my my feelings and my experience actually impacted the way he chose to continue living his life. I've made it very difficult for her to enjoy many parts of intimacy. I absolutely terrified her for years just by being around. She would spend every day, or at least once at some point, almost every day, 
trapped in that that night and 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 basically reliving it and she's had to think about it every single day um and i'm not sure if the wounds are all the way healed i, I doubt they are but um um it's a pain that I can't take away no matter what I do I, I can't take that away and I know I've said it a thousand times but I I am sorry I took a few minutes and processed. Um, like that's that's when everything finally clicked, and I was like, I, I read like I thought I understood before, and then I read her testimony, and then everything solidified itself for me. I was like, okay, this is what I'd done. After I was done reliving and contemplating, and frankly hating myself, um, Frank asked me um, if there's anything in my testimony I would like to change. Um, I immediately say yes, and then I start going line by line through Onwin's testimony and saying, can I please add this to my testimony? Can I please add this to my testimony? And so it was basically filling in my testimony with lots of details that I could not remember, um, that I didn't remember now because I got to read it and got to relive it. Samir is moving toward what they call in restorative justice, I guess, a repair plan. So what were some of the details of Samir's repair plan? Yeah, so there were multiple kind of pieces of it, but a, a couple of them were, one, you know, finding more ways to tell his story, which Reckonings has been one of them, <laughs> but there have been many, uh, writing an article for their university magazine where he actually... Um, I guess outed himself like he, he wrote the article from his actual name um, working to make green dot training mandatory for all Greek letter organizations on campus you know so that all fraternities and sororities you know have to do green dot training um, uh, teaching young men about consent you know and that formally or, or informally you know informally just talking to his friends and you know and he continues he continues to do this a lot of this uh, today um, so this has really kind of become, a, a, you know, a, a part of his life, you know, doing kind of working to prevent uh, sexual abuse of power. Right. And included in the repair plan, as you mentioned, was for him to just talk openly with his male friends about the parameters of sexual encounters with partners. Let's listen to a little bit of what he had to say about that, you know, to his male colleagues on campus. I'll, like I'll ask like one question and it'll really throw him off. I'm like, so like you enjoyed yourself? Like yeah. Like, did she enjoy herself? It's like, of course she did. I'm like, how do you know? It's like, well, she did. Uh, she did this, this, this. Like, did you ask her? And they're like, no. Why would I do that? I'm like, because it's good to communicate. 
if I'm really comfortable with the friends, like I, I tell them to talk to their partners about introducing different methods of communication while participating in sexual acts so that their partners know that they feel comfortable. Like for example, um, having a safe word to stop sexual, uh, sexual play. Even if it's not super intense, sometimes things happen. Sometimes people get triggered. Sometimes people just want to stop and they want to be able to communicate that effectively, use a safe word. Another great one that I've been told was like the stoplight system where like if one person doesn't like isn't opposed to what's happening but wants things to ease up a little bit they say yellow and that is a sign for their other partner to be like okay keep doing what you're doing but ease up a little bit versus red is like full stop like i need you to stop doing what you're doing i'm not about that and it's just these different really easy like very easy to implement methods of communication that allow one for better actual sex when you have it and then two prevent a lot of potential pain with some good practical tips there. Yeah, you often hear this whole thing about, you know, like, well, isn't it awkward to, you know, bring it up while you're, it's like, well, what's more awkward, finding out afterwards that you really didn't make them feel good or or actually knowing the entire way because you're engaged with them. And he, he makes a great point. It actually does make for better sex when you have it, as well as, yes, prevent a lot of potential pain. Right. So tell us about what punishment or consequences that Samir did have to uh, deal with for his admission of guilt about his sexual behavior with Anwan. Yeah, so he got, let's see, he got a, uh, a, a formal uh, a conduct reprimand, which is basically a, a strike on his academic record. And then, of course, having to tell his story publicly, which has had its own consequences, you know, um, creating tension in you know relationships he has that he's had to really work through but Samir is very clear that this is the you know facing himself you know confronting what he did is absolutely the hardest thing he has ever done in his life now one of the very interesting objections to the restorative justice model that you bring up uh, in the program on reckonings is whether restorative justice seems to let a perpetrator off easy Right. I liked Anwan's response to that and uh, Samir's comments too. So let's hear that. Restorative justice is not lenient. Uh, you're forced to take a look at your innermost darkness. Um, and I think that's one of the most difficult things a person can do is to confront their own shadow and come face to face with themselves. Every time that I've wanted to punish myself beyond all belief, she always said, no, I want you to do better. Don't just take the easy route and lock yourself up or get yourself kicked off campus because that's not gonna help anybody. Because she never, she never wanted to punish me. She wanted me to learn, she wanted me to grow. She wanted me to prevent this from ever happening. I, I didn't want to take away his agency because that would just be reversing the roles. I, I would say what's important to me in the restorative justice process is that both people are given a space where they are empowered to make things better. I want all of this to be shared and I want to speak out about it and I wanna tell this story and I want to be telling this story with Samir because it's so powerful to have both of us speaking. Um, I want to provide an example 
of an instance of rape in which you can really see that both people are human and both people are more than their actions and can grow. Boy, there is uh, so much uh, compassion and uh, empathy and emotional intelligence in these two. Um, it's pretty breathtaking um, to hear these young people, you know, really coming to a place that it seems so hard for the rest of society to get to. Yes, yes, I, I totally agree. It, it, it makes me feel so hopeful um, to hear these young voices be so emotionally mature. Yeah. I feel, I feel like I'm just feeling it all over again, just listening to that clip. Yeah. Well, again, to find the whole series on Reckonings, the podcast, go to reckonings.show. This particular one is episode number 21, A Survivor and Her Perpetrator Find Justice, but there are many more. Stephanie, I salute you for your work, and I'll bet we'll be talking again maybe to share some other content from your podcast with our Peace Talks listeners. Thanks for allowing us to do that today. Thank you, Paul. It was great to talk with you. To hear this segment again, you can go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, and look for our July 2019 episode. Also there, you can hear our complete interview with Stephanie Lepp of Reckonings and find links to other episodes in her podcast series that relate to peacemaking. That's all at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Now on to part two of our program. When interpersonal conflicts arise, our capacity for care and compassion can sometimes be eclipsed by other emotions. De-escalation is an emerging practice within conflict resolution that helps people return to that place of balance. Lindsay Krinks leads trainings in de-escalation on behalf of the nonprofit that she co-founded, which is called Open Table Nashville in Nashville, Tennessee. Though she predominantly works with homeless communities, Lindsay emphasizes the degree to which de-escalation can be beneficial to anyone facing conflict. To begin her conversation with correspondent Sarah Holtz, Lindsay explained the mission and vision of her organization. Our mission is to disrupt cycles of poverty, journey with the marginalized, and provide education about issues of homelessness. And near and dear to our heart is um, so many of our folks who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who are crushed in our system, and they're folks that often feel um, the pressure of the injustices in our world. So lots of folks get heated and upset, and that's where escalation comes, de-escalation comes in, and those skills are really important. Great. And could you define de-escalation for folks who might not be familiar? Sure. If you think of escalation, it's really like a rising of levels or intensity. And so de-escalation then would be reducing that intensity, kind of bringing things down and um, kind of calming them back to a level place. And what are some of the warning signs of um, someone having um, a moment of escalation or maybe exhibiting some trauma? So some of the warning signs could be, you know, someone with clenched fists, someone who's pacing back and forth, someone who's face is kind of tight and um, displeased or upset. And we always say, you know, it's so, so much easier to prevent escalated situations when you can catch those warning signs early. Maybe it's somebody who's withdrawing from a group, or maybe it's someone who's starting to raise their voice and get more agitated. Um, it looks different for different people, but that prevention part, catching it early is so important. Could you talk a little bit about what goes on both in the brain and then um, in our bodies when someone is becoming escalated? 
So when someone becomes escalated, there's a lot that happens in the body. And I'm going to talk about a couple things. Um, one of the things that's really important to understand is that our brains um, are firing in a way when we get escalated in a way that doesn't foster logical thinking. It fosters those fight, flight, and freeze responses. So if you think of the brain as like a raised fist, you know, the wrist is like the brain stem, and that's the instinctual parts of our brain. Um, then the inside of the hand is like your limbic system, your emotional parts of your brain, and then the top is like the cortex, the neocortex, it's the thinking parts of our brain. During crisis and trauma and escalation, the thinking parts of our brain go offline. So we go back into that center of the hand to the instinctual parts of our brain too, where we're really in survival mode. And we literally can't think about creative problem solving or logic. We can't think about consequences because our body goes back to that real primal instinct, which is get out, get away, or fight. A couple other things that are going on in the body that are important to know, um, a lot's happening with our nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system controls all those parts of our body that we don't have to think about, like our breathing, our heart rate, our blood pressure. And on a normal day, that is functioning in these really beautiful regulated waves. But in a situation of ex escalation, those waves either get stuck on where people are raging, they can't stop their heartbeat, they are anxious, they're panicking. Um, that's like the hyper-aroused, hyper-vigilant state. Or those waves can get stuck off, which is kind of the dissociation, um, feeling depressed, feeling low and paralyzed. So in these situations, um, it's really important to be able to bring people back to themselves and to understand until you can get those logical parts of the brain firing again and until you can get those waves kind of calm, they're not going to be able to think outside of what, like the hormones and the things that are coursing through their bodies. It's really important to help people return to themselves so they can start regulating those systems again. And um, I know that you operate under um, the framework of trauma-informed care. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so in a simple, a simple definition of trauma-informed care would just be treating folks with non-judgmental compassion, meeting people where they are, and understanding that their behaviors have roots into their past experiences and past traumas. Um, the larger, more clinical definition of trauma-informed care is really saying, you know, this is an evidence-based practice, which means it has a whole body of research behind it and has been shown to be really effective. And it's a method for interacting that takes trauma seriously in people's lives, that takes the effects of trauma on people's minds and hearts and bodies seriously and prioritizes both safety for everyone involved and also the voice and um, agency and dignity of the people involved. So there's a lot of focus on people's voices and their choices. Um, there's a lot of focus on mutuality and kind of collaborating and being a team instead of being defensive or offensive. And there's a lot of focus on empowerment, um, not shutting people down, but giving people options to take back control in their own lives. So what are kind of the next steps when you um, see someone who is in an escalated state? When we see somebody in an escalated state, it's really important to check in with them. You know, I've been a part of groups 
where, um, you know, we're working either in a movement context where, um, you know, there's a march or there's an action, or we're working in like an emergency shelter for people in the cold. And we have like a vibes committee or a vibes team where we go around and we check in with people. We're like, hey, it looks like you are having a really hard day. Um, is there, can I get you some water? Can I get you some coffee? Um, do you want to talk about anything? The prevention element is really important. Most situations that escalate can be prevented. Um, not all situations that escalate can be contained. Um, so the earlier you can catch something, the more you can do to prevent. Um, we tell people, you know, always check in with folks. Tell people your name and who you are. Um, be a friendly face because we know that body language communicates so much to people. We say approach somebody as a concerned friend and as an equal and get their name. The more we know people's names and the more we build rapport with folks, the better trust we're going to have and the more kind of relational rapport we'll have to de-escalate if a situation comes up. Some things you can't prevent and they just escalate and then we're into the act of de-escalation. I know in your trainings, um, you use this terminology that I hadn't heard before, uh, the window of presence or tolerance. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So this idea of the window of tolerance, and I like to call it the window of presence, is was developed by um, a guy named Dr. Dan Siegel, who does a lot with psychiatry and mindfulness. And he said, you know, our window, is, window of presence is like our comfort zone. It's when we're cool and we're calm and we're collected and we can self-regulate our emotions. And it's not a static window. You know, when we're stressed out, that window gets smaller. And when we're healthy um, and we're taking care of ourselves, that window expands. We can get knocked out of our window um, by a crisis situation. So that can happen to the people we're working with or it can happen to us when we step into an escalated situation. Maybe we get stuck on where we're hypervigilant, where we're hyper-aroused, everything's a threat, um, our hands start shaking, our heart starts beating. We've got to get back to that calm place. Um, we can also get knocked off into the um, kind of paralyzed place too. That's that freeze response. So the idea of the window of presence is we have to get back to our center, to our window of presence in order to be effective in these situations. And in order to de-escalate folks, we have to help them get back into their window. And there's a lot of ways people do that, and everybody's different. So some people use mindfulness techniques. Some people use scented oils or sensory awareness. Other people use cigarettes, you know, or a walk or something like that. I, I work on the streets of Nashville, and I carry cigarettes with me because it's a really great way to say, hey, friend, looks like things have been really hard. You want to take just a few minutes to kind of smoke and just relax and maybe we can walk and talk. And that can really diffuse things pretty easily. Um, for some, for other situations, maybe it's having some fidget things in your office or a stress ball or um, toys if you're working with children. Something that can get people in touch with their senses and can bring people back to that window. I'm curious, how did you learn about um, these different, because obviously these tools are pretty disparate and they really depend on uh, who you're working with. How did you learn to carry cigarettes and scented oil um, with you on the streets? Um, most of it was trial and error. After a few years, you're like something. I have to figure out 
what's going to help in these situations. And honestly, something else I saw was um, that's what people do on the streets with each other. They're like, hey, man, just come smoke a cigarette with me for a while. Cool down, cool down. It's cool. Um, And I would watch how people were interacting with each other and learn so much from the people that I serve and work with on a daily basis. I also just ask people what they want and what would help in the moment. Sometimes we think, well, we have to assess the situation and figure out what they need. But so many times we assume what somebody needs without asking them. And if we asked, they would say, actually, I don't smoke. I want coffee, you know, (laughs) or actually I haven't eaten in a day. Um, I really need food right now. I'm hangry. That's why I'm so mad. So we just ask people to what they need. And for some of my friends on the streets, oils are a little bit too hippie. But in the movement community, everybody's like, yeah, give me some of that lavender. So, um, So you find out what works for you and you find out what works for your people. And you ask when you don't know. Um, and you just start building. And it's important to carry those things when you know you're going to be in those situations. But also the best resource you have in those situations is yourself. Your tone of voice and your body language is going to immediately affect someone who's escalated without even them knowing it. Because humans read each other. We read each other's energy. And on a subconscious level, we're responding to each other's energy. So the more we are have our hearts racing and are um, kind of stern in our face and judgmental in our face, um, the more they're going to mirror that back to us. But the quieter we can be, the slower we can be, the more we can bring things down, literally like we're walking down a set of stairs, um, the more their bodies will start to mirror that too. Um, sometimes that's something that can work really well. We'll hear more from Lindsay Krinks, co-founder of Open Table Nashville, and her work employing de-escalation as a conflict resolution tool in matters with Nashville's homeless and in our own lives. When we continue with Peace Talks Radio right after this break. I'm Peace Talks Radio producer Paul Ingalls, and let's go back now to our correspondent Sarah Holtz, talking in Nashville, Tennessee, with Lindsay Krinks of Open Table Nashville, a nonprofit that tries to break cycles of poverty there, as they continue looking into Krinks' use of de-escalation in conflict resolution scenarios. I'm curious how you all determine um, at any in any given situation uh, who the best person to handle an escalated situation is. So sometimes we don't have a choice and it's just, if you're there, you step in. Um, Sometimes it's like that working on the streets. Um, No one else is around and I see a street fight going on. So I go over and I have to figure out um, if it's safe for me to step in. You kind of always have to check in with yourself and think there are risks involved in stepping into escalated situations. And I want to be real about that. Um, People get hurt. So you have to really listen to your gut and pay attention to that and figure out if that's something you're willing to do and read the situation. 
if you have rapport with folks, if you have relationships, you're going to be way more likely to step into a situation and call people back into themselves than if you've never met them before and they don't know you and they don't care about you. I remember um, early on after we started Open Table, we ran a transitional housing community that was co-ed. And one night there's a man named, we'll call him Tim, who was in a house meeting and he got really angry, rightfully so, about one of the younger women in the house. And he went over, he stood up from his seat, went over to the couch and starts yelling at her and getting in her face. That was the only staff member there. And I knew Tim, I'd known him for years. So I stepped in and I said, I put my body in the middle of them. And literally it's the first time I've ever stepped into a, a situation that was escalated. My hands were shaking like a leaf. I couldn't stop them from shaking, but I just kept saying, Tim, this isn't who you are. I know who you are, and I locked eyes with him. I was like, I know who you are, and this is not who you are. I was able to keep saying that, be a broken record on repeat, and finally move him into the kitchen, and then finally get him to step outside with me and get some fresh air and take a walk. Um, but sometimes you don't you don't have a choice, and there's no one else that can respond. Um, certainly relationships do matter. There's also a lot of critical self-awareness we have to have in the world because we are not going into like a vacuum of um, power balance when we um, when we step into these situations. Our society is not equitable. Power imbalances exist on an interpersonal level and on a systemic level. And that's really important to understand because when people are escalated, they feel powerless. And if you are a person, if we are people that hold certain levels of power, that can be on a race level, on gender, on sexuality, on education, on class. If you're in a uniform, you're more likely to read as an authority figure than if you're dressed down. All of these things matter when we go into a situation and we have to know how we present to the people that we're going in with. Um, I'm a younger um, shorter white female. So in a lot of situations I don't read as threatening, but in some situations I could, and I have to understand that. And if there's someone that can better, um, speak the cultural language or have rapport with that community that's there, they could be a better person to deescalate the situation than I can. And so having a critical self-awareness and cultivating that in our actions, in this field is incredibly important. Yeah, it also seems like there's a, a big element of uh, restorative justice kind of embedded in this work too. Absolutely. It's it's not about punishing folks for things that they often can't control. There's a feeling of being out of control when you're escalated. And those of us who are human and have had those experiences know that it feels crappy. It feels terrible. Um, it's about restoring people to themselves, bringing people back to themselves, and entering back into healing relationships and community. I've seen so many people heal and begin to change the ways they interact with each other and change the ways they act when they're triggered, when they're treated as human beings. You know, our, our behaviors have roots. They're like the tip of an iceberg. The behavior is like that tip of the iceberg that we can see. And the iceberg underneath, which is huge, is like all the things we can't see. People's lives, how they grew up, how they learned anger management or not from their parents and families and friends. 
feelings of powerlessness they have um, when they're economically disenfranchised, when they're discriminated against. If we can be curious instead of judgmental about what's going on beneath the surface of people's behaviors, it will help us treat people with more compassion um, and be better listeners to why folks are in the place they are. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, what Open Table Nashville is doing um, in the community these days, um, the programs that you're currently working on and challenges and, and maybe some recent successes. Yeah, so Open Table Nashville is wonderful and we stay very busy. We're always working on more affordable housing here. We're working with a lot of members of campsites who are often facing displacement because of growing gentrification and the city is closing those camps. So we're constantly advocating with them for their rights and helping them organize. We are also trying to educate our community because a lot of people are still functioning under those stereotypes of, um, you know, well, they're, they did this to themselves or they want to be unhoused. So our community education is part of breaking the cycles of poverty because we can't break the cycles if we don't understand them. So we're constantly training folks on homeless outreach, on trauma-informed care, on de-escalation, on advocacy and policy. And we're trying to empower our community to be more compassionate and just. We're not just trying to create a shiny nonprofit. You know, we're trying to like actually end homelessness and work ourselves out of a job and create a radical culture of care in our city. It seems like Nashville's been obviously growing and changing a lot over the past decade. Uh, what role does that play in your work? Yeah, so in Nashville, the research is saying that we're still having like 80 people a day move to our city, and the growth we're experiencing has put a lot of pressure on our housing market. And we've not only experienced gentrification, it's been on this rapid scale that's like hyper-gentrification, so, so many of our communities are being displaced. Our low-income friends, um, our friends who camp and live in the margins, our friends who rent, um, so many homes and apartments are being flipped. So, you know, the growth has a dark side here, and we work on the underside of our society and try to bear witness to that and amplify people's voices that are on the margins. So yesterday, I was with a group of um, folks who work with housing agencies across the state of Tennessee, they're the folks who run public housing and who issue Section 8 vouchers for low-income folks. And they, there are about 40, 50 people in the room, and they were all so interested in how to help folks that come into their office that are angry, righteously so, about the lack of housing and the lack of services for people on the ground. And a few of them said, you know, I wish all my coworkers could have this training because they just don't know what to do. And they think they have to use their authority to shut people down. We want them to have better tools because that old model of de-escalation where you step in and you take control and you take people's power away, not only does it not work, research is showing, but when it does work, when it does shut something down, it will never bring healing and one of the women in that group said, you know, when I started this work, someone told me, never make people feel small. When people are coming in and they're upset, when they're agitated, there's something behind it. Don't make them feel small. Um, and I really loved that because you can just see a complete shift in how we're interacting with people. We don't come in 
and use our authority to put people in their place. We come in curious. We come in seeing the strengths in people and being interested in what they've gone through. And we try to help them feel like they have options. A lot of escalated people feel like their backs are against the wall and everybody's against them. So the more we can say, hey, let me be on your team here. Let's try to work this out together. The more we can validate their feelings of being frustrated, of being angry. Um, It doesn't mean we validate the reasons they're angry. We might not even agree with that. But the more we can affirm, hey, I see you're really upset and I bet there's a really good reason. I would help me understand. The more we can keep people talking, the more their logical brain is coming back online and helping them think through consequences and um, creative solutions to the problems. So if we can help people move from having their back against the wall and feeling small to feeling like they have options and feeling like they have us on their team, us in their corner, then they don't have to feel like they have so much to prove in being escalated or continuing the fight. When you're working on de-escalation, it's also really important to minimize the distractions in a room. So sometimes when fights occur, um, you can get an audience, right? And that just, the energy just feeds the person's anxieties and their heightened state. So the more you can get out of that situation, the more you can get somebody to walk around with you or sit down. When you sit down and when you keep people talking, people are less of a threat. Um, than when that energy is feeding them. And you can call people out in the audience who are egging you on and be like, y'all, give us some space. We really need we really need you to chill out because we've got some work to do right now and we've got to get to the bottom of this. People that are escalated need to be heard and they need to be affirmed. And the more we can practice active listening and reflect back to them what they're saying and show that we hear them and show that we are taking their emotions seriously, the more validated they'll feel and the less of the need they'll feel to prove that they've been wronged and to somebody else in a bigger, more dramatic way. Here's the thing. We're all human and we've all had moments where we've come unhinged or we've gotten angry or we've shut down and we've needed this from other people. This doesn't just work with folks who are economically disenfranchised. Um, This works with our friends. It works with us. It works with our family members, with people who have children. Um, This is an approach that translates across so many different differences. I also just want people to know, you know, some situations can't be de-escalated. You can do everything right. You can do your best and you can actively listen and practice open body language and offer options. And still the situation is beyond your control. So it's so important to have grace with yourself and to know that um, afterwards you did everything you could. You know, in situations of trauma and crisis, we often replay situations over and over in our heads. And we're like, we should have done this. Why didn't we do that? We're really hard on ourselves. So it's important to have grace with yourself and take care of yourself and to know that we can learn from every situation And if you can't de-escalate something, it doesn't mean you failed. It means you did your best and you had the courage to step in when no one else did. And that's something to be proud of and it's something to learn from. So I just want to encourage folks to have grace with themselves through this process too. Are there any other misconceptions about your work that you often get from community members? 
Yeah, you know, I think most folks think that um, that we're just folks with soft hearts who want to, like, quote-unquote, help the homeless. But when we get to know the people that are out there on the streets, you realize that these are folks, some are, there's nurses, there's teachers, there's parents, there's children, there's grandmothers, like, these are people with lives who have incredible stories and hopes and capabilities. So many people look at our people and they see problems to be solved, you know, or people to be discarded. And we see something totally different. So it's trying to help our community um, put on a strength-based lens and see the gifts people are bringing and the light people are bringing and the hope that we have to create a Nashville, to create a a city and a state and a world that is way better in terms of housing. We we can do so much more to end homelessness. We're just not doing it. We know it works and we're not prioritizing it. So it's definitely difficult, but um, we keep going because we, we are full of love for our friends. And you already sort of indirectly covered this, um, but I'm curious what drew you personally to this work? Um, you know, I grew up in a family that had some level of stability, but all around me in my extended family, there was substance use or extreme mental health issues. I had uncles and cousins who were on and off the streets and out of jail. Um, I had family members who committed suicide. And always for me, there was this, um, this understanding that people are hurting, but I didn't realize that it was on such a systemic level and there are systemic reasons for some of those issues until I was a little bit older. And once I realized how many issues there are in our society that foster injustice, that foster oppression, that foster more trauma for people on the bottom, the more I was like, I I can't just go into trying to construct a comfortable life for myself. I have to be where there are people hurting. I have to be where people are being crushed because that's where I find the most life and that's where I find um, liberation. And I find my own liberation in participating in the collective liberation of all. And that's a really beautiful thing and I'm thankful for that. That was Lindsay Krinks, co-founder of Open Table Nashville, a nonprofit that works to disrupt cycles of poverty. She talked with our correspondent, Sarah Holtz. To hear this whole program again, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, and look for our July 2019 episode. You can hear all of our programs in our series dating back to 2002, Real Treasure Trove, Peace Studies Archive, all at peacetalksradio.com. Supported by listeners like you, clicking on that donate button at our webpage. Listeners like Betsy Christensen, who donated in memory of her parents, John and Audrey. We also had support from the Albuquerque Community Foundation's Tides Fund and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.